0: Our world started with a data explosion marked by an exponential growth in the volume, velocity, and variety of data being piped in and out of organizations. However, despite this new wealth in technology and data, businesses had never been so challenged to drive revenue growth, plagued by dark, siloed, unusable data rendering their go-to-market motions useless. Until one day, the most courageous data heroes took back control of their company's most valuable asset, transforming their customer data sets from a burden to a true system of insight, capable of automating sales motions, delivering personalized marketing programs at scale, and driving predictable revenue growth for their business. Welcome to the Data Heroes podcast powered
1: by Ringlead. All right. Welcome everybody to another Talk Data to Me. We've got a very special guest today with us, Andrew Marr. The chief customer officer at Triblio. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're we're glad to have you. So the you know the, let's just kind of get started and get into your background first and foremost. Um, what was your journey to becoming a data hero? Yeah. Um,
0: so I've been working with marketers my whole career. Uh, so I think there's always some level of you know data that you're kind of working with uh, in marketing. Um, So I think it's been a progression from pretty simple levels of that to to where we are now, where uh, we're able to do pretty advanced things with data. I think of it in terms of kind of levels. And I think, you know, kind of the first marketing jobs I worked, performance and and using data was all about A-B testing, kind of this quantum view of the universe. Everybody's a probability. And if you can just do enough A-B testing, then you can get most of the people doing what you want or more of the people doing what you want in terms of campaign responses. Joining Triblio and kind of going into this, uh, account-based universe was me really wanting to move beyond that type of uh, data usage into, well, how much more granular can we get? Can people not be probabilities, but can they actually be, co- you know, quantities that we know something about and can actually customize for kind of at scale? And and that's where ABM started. And, and now that's moving into kind of, you know, us getting into a predictive space where you're doing even more interesting things. Um, so I think that's been the journey. Really, it's been, you know, me more growing with marketing growing um, and, 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 Uh, the the data getting better and better. Um, But that's the that's the short version.
1: Love it. Well, um, everybody wants to know what would you be doing if you were not in the position you're in today? yeah that's
0: a good question i mean if money were no object i might be uh just spending all my time outdoors uh doing that type of thing mountain biking or or rock climbing or something um but what i you know i I thought about this question you said ahead of time and what i really have loved about being at triblio and that would look for any other place was a surprise to me uh, as my role evolved here. And it's that when I got started, I remember you know thinking, okay, we're gonna get to this next level of using data, that's gonna be exciting. But as I was learning about the ABM space and wh- what came before us in terms of marketing automation, What really got me excited is that before the last round of marketing automation, you know, the Eloqua's and Marketo's, uh, there wasn't such a thing as a demand generation function, really. Marketing operations wasn't a a function, wasn't a career track as much. And the technology and those strategies created those, you know, career outcomes for people, which is pretty exciting. And I remember sitting in our boardroom with the first person, I hired on a customer success at Triblio, thinking five years down the road and said, you know, if we really do our jobs well here, in in three or four years, people are going to be writing to us saying, hey, I'm hiring a director of account-based marketing. Do you know anyone? And like two years ago, that started happening. I remember the first one I got, I was like, well, maybe that's a one. And then it it happened again and again. Um, So seeing that kind of impact, you know, being able to really start building something, not just the company itself, but also you know, what people can do with their careers, make good use of their skills has been exciting. So I would try to find something else like that, but I think I've been pretty lucky. I don't know how many opportunities there are to do something like that. Um, but I try to find something like that where impact could kind of be, um, you know, just, you know, broad and, and trying to like, you know, leverage myself as much as possible. But I um, it might've been a once in a lifetime thing. I feel pretty fortunate.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, you see this ecosystem around CRM, marketing automation, at ABM, it's each of these have taken on their own kind of role and and to see personas or job positions be created in these roles is really exciting, especially if you're one yeah. of the, you know, the leaders in, in driving that transformation. So, um, you know, getting back into kind of data and, and dirty data for that matter, um, what is the biggest dirty data disaster that your teams have ever faced? Uh, there's uh, <laughs> a
0: lot of ways I could answer that question. Um, I, I think the one that uh, I can probably share that, that comes to mind first um, is is one time we were doing an onboarding for a customer and we were under you know during the onboarding we were under a lot of time pressure We had a very specific time targets we had to meet to complete integration to get campaigns live. And it was early innings uh, for us, and we just made some assumptions about the state of the data we'd be getting from them uh, when we started, and when we began the onboarding integrations, it just wasn't the case. Their account data, which was went back you know decades, uh, was was super messy, and we couldn't we couldn't match accounts initially. There was tons of just you know meaningless data in there, so there was no way we were going to hit our timetables. And I remember going and talking to uh, our our CTO about it and saying we need to do something differently here because there's no way we can get things live in the way. That customer expects if we can't clean this really fast or find some way to help them do it. So he kind of took that into the weekend and, and figured out a way to basically scan through and really quickly figure out, okay, you know, of this bad data, you know, what's probably a typo, what's probably a business change, what stuff they can correct versus not correct. Wasn't perfect, but from, a, you know, getting us onto the right track, took something that was a, it was a data mass. There was no way that we were gonna, you know, human power our way through it in the time we needed to, um, and we're able to get through it. But that one definitely uh, was a pretty stressful week uh, before we got the, the issue you figured out there.
1: Yeah, I'd say, you know, if you want to implement ABM and your account data is poor, right? you don't have normalization standards or, you know, account names are incorrectly filled out, or maybe you don't have other data like the headquarter or the, the location or the industry. You know, these are all values that are critical in building ideal, ideal customer profiles, exactly. matching people to accounts, like doing all that. So, you know, for those of you out there trying to adopt ABM, just make sure that that account data is uh, tip top. Um, moving into kind of that, I guess, um, um, you know, the person-based journey, right? Personalization. If you Google like marketing personalization, you're going to find thousands of articles and ebooks yeah. and videos. But um, in your opinion. What is personalization's impact on campaign returns?
0: Yeah, it's a a great question. I think that I would start by saying it it does have to be, you know, in the account-based universe uh, of uh, of marketing strategy, um, it has to be done correctly for it to have a good impact. And so what I mean by that is that personalization... um, you know, needs to be toward the toward the account. So it can be account level. You don't have to be calling out someone's job title, but what are the needs and interests of that account? I think that in the kind of early days, a lot of people thought of account-based personalization as like, oh, we'll drop the company name into something. And like, won't that be interesting? And maybe that was interesting <laughs> for like five minutes. But really for, for personalization to work in an account-based context, at any rate, um, it needs to be you know uh, based on insights about the account, about on good data about the account, but the person and the people looking at that don't need to know it's been personalized for them. It just needs to connect and be interesting. Um, so you have to think about it that way. W- when we see that being done well, whether that's on firmographic data, like you said, uh, information about the sales rep you want them connecting with, information about the intent signals that are being shown in that account, then we would say the benchmark would be 20% conversion at any kind of stage um, that you're optimizing for with that customization. And that that applies pretty cleanly across across channels, too. We've seen it applied in web personalization. That's a good benchmark. In sales outreach, it's a good benchmark. Um, Certainly, companies can do a lot better than that. um, But it's a a healthy target. In some cases, it can be a really simple approach, too. Um, I remember a customer we were onboarding um, a couple of years ago and they were early in their content development, early in, um, you know, what they actually had in terms of offers that they could show in their campaigns, but they knew that they had a couple of really targeted messages depending on the industry because they were marketing into regulated industries. So healthcare industries cared about one type of legislation that might pass that might impact impact their business. You know, pharma was another, you know, financial services was another. So they actually were promoting... um, um, built a whole campaign where the underlying asset, this ebook they were offering to these accounts, was the same, but they marketed it differently, just based on industry, knowing that okay, you know, we're going to give guidance about you know Finra compliance here. It was all in the ebook, but they just did like the offer differently. And some of their verticals, they did that for it, like was like four times, four or five x improvement over the baseline because they did an A/B test. Um, so that's really interesting. So it can be customization just done right with good data, make it interesting to the account you'd see really big lift. Uh, But again, it has to be done based on making it interesting for the customer, not just personalization for its own sake um, and calling out company name, things like that.
1: Yeah, I love that. I mean, account planning when it comes to ABM is the the salesperson's homework typically starts with the data, but then it can dive deeper into like the 10K or the quarterly transcript. And, um, you know, I spoke about how we're talking about personalization on individuals, but then you flipped it to an account level. And if you're selling to a person in a business, it's like if you can speak to what is important to their business, that is personalization. So I really like that insight. And um uh, you know, we're gonna ask another kind of similar question, but with better data, um, tell me how you can improve ABM campaign execution. Sure, uh, and actually, I'll let me elaborate on that that last point.
0: One other thing I would highlight that's really interesting in an account based context is that um, HBR, Harvard Business Review released an interesting study a couple years ago talking about personalization in a in a business context. And everyone knows most people in B2B know the stats about okay, there's eleven to twenty five decision makers in an account now. And what the study showed is that actually over-personalizing to the individuals instead of highlighting the account as a whole actually made some stakeholders more aware of their own interests and what they wanted out of the deal, but blind to what the CFO cared about and blind to what someone in another division cared about and actually ended up kind of tearing the deal in different directions instead of building people toward, well, here's the needs that this whole solution has to deliver. Um, so actually overly focusing on individuals and not creating kind of an account centric message about all the benefits you're delivering. Um, and then for that, you need to know, okay, well, what's our value proposition for, you know, a, a finance division when there's these intent signals showing or the operations division in this industry, what matters? Um, so anyways, again, customization done right, uh, personalization done right can look a bit different. Um, in terms of, you know, um, with better data like how do you improve campaign execution again it's probably four areas the first one is just that predictive area knowing okay in you know a a given segment or given certain intent signals you know should this account be in a campaign should we be reaching out to them at all right now or should we focus our resources somewhere else um you know the the, the, the marketing dollars are, are finite. The sales hours are finite. So you have to know who you should be spending time on. So predicting which accounts uh, should be in a campaign at all is is part one. Um, also staging, how far are they into that journey? How do you know when an account has moved from like an awareness stage into truly that like consideration mode? And what does that mean about the tactics you should be using? Account data is super important for that. You want a system that can understand the difference between when to feed someone kind of top of funnel brand awareness messaging versus when to trigger, you know, sales to reach out or when to trigger a higher cost marketing tactic like direct mail where you're actually gonna, you know, you know, spend a hundred bucks to to do something. Um, and then third, I would say there's there's personalization. That personalization we just talked about, you can't do that without good data uh, to operate off of. Data about the account, data about the people, like you said. Um, are there events happening in that business that change what they're going to need from us, change our competitive position? Um, so that's all kind of, the I would say, the segmentation and, and messaging side. And then there's also targeting. You have to have good data to actually do this targeting if you're going to run across different channels. So, uh, you know, if you're targeting people on the website, you need IP to company data and, and to map up with marketing automation cookies. If it's on ads, you're going to need all this new cohort data that, you know, the post cookie targeting world is, is kind of um, modifying. Uh, if you're doing direct mail, you're going to need home address, things like that. So, data is really important, really across the whole scope, you know that. Um, but for for staging, for personalization, for segmentation, and then to actually do it to get the targeting done accurately, um, it, it's important across all those.
1: Yeah, it's you know you, you went both deep and wide in that explanation. I think um, you know when people watch this again, uh, you should watch that a few times because there are multiple facets that data is driving, and it depends on the channels that you guys are utilizing um, to yeah. get into these accounts, and um, you know. Let's kind of switch gears and you guys have an amazing platform that supports ABM. And I think a lot of people kind of want to know, Like, can, can you tell us what ABM orchestration actually looks like?
0: Yeah, um, so I think in the early days of of ABM, um, if you if you kind of uh, looked under the hood of what was happening, in a lot of programs, definitely the the earliest stages of like the the new era ABM, the last five years, it, it was a lot of advertising essentially. You know, that was the easy thing to execute, didn't take a lot of stakeholders, um, and you know, gradually then maybe one other you know channel would get uh, kind of put into that. When we think of orchestration and really what marketers need to be doing to be you know leaders leaders in their field going forward. Uh, We describe that as orchestration and it's three things. Um, So you have to have um, an automated account selection and prioritization process. Um, A lot of the early customers that we worked with, you know, five, six years ago, when they were building their lists, it was super manual. It took forever, um, you know, marketing and sales would disagree about accounts. So by the time you actually got a list into market and then could actually do your tact- run your tactics, that data might be old or you might be disqualifying accounts mid-process. And that process has been, you know, that predictive kind of automated account selection process has been getting better and better. Um, you know, the, the pandemic actually kicked that all into overdrive, I think, because all of a sudden, you know, a lot of companies needed a new pipeline. Um, so how do we do account selection really fast? How do we prioritize customers and know how to do, you know, good, good account management with them? So orchestration is is predictive. It's automated account selection. Um, it also has to be cross-channel and multi-stage. And when I describe that, I think everyone has seen these types of campaigns. If you've if you've read case studies or been to an event and like oh at the award show like who won like coolest ABM campaign it, it's some variation of well we we had you know ads that ran at first. And then, you know, we invited them to an event and then we sent them a tchotchke with, you know, Sendoso. And then, you know, there was, uh, you know, uh, sales follow up and maybe some one to one tactics at the bottom, and all that looks really great and makes sense. But it's again not what a lot of ABM campaigns really were for years. It was just advertising. But that that gold standard is real. The 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 vision of an account that you can engage with ads and close with sales and that's it. I think is a fantasy in most cases. Buyers are consuming information across lots of channels. All of them are cross referencing things. You know when they see an ad. If it says something totally different than what your homepage says in terms of who you specialize in or what your value proposition is, they're going to pick up on that. Um, so you need all the channels saying the right thing at the same time, and you need the the stages to progress because obviously top of funnel is very different than than bottom funnel messaging. So it has to be that cross-channel, multi-stage vision. And then third, um, to what we were talking about earlier, it's gotta be personalization at scale. You can't just take the same message and, and blast every account with it over and over again. And say, oh, well, this is, our, this is our bottom of funnel messaging, or this is our mid funnel messaging. Um, there's the, the customers that are using data better that are, you know, collecting better data, know what data is truly indicative of needing to run different plays, and then can execute all that automatically are going to win. I mean, they're going to be delivering more relevant messaging, their sales teams are going to be having better, more insightful conversations, following up on the right accounts. Um, And those larger buying teams are all going to be engaged around the same message. Again, if you even you know, take, the, take that example we talked about at the beginning, and if you're sending you know, messages that actually conflict a little bit to different stakeholders because you're trying to over-personalize, you could actually be setting up your sales rep with, with headaches down the road of, you know, oh, the CFO thought it was going to be one thing, and the marketing leader thought it was going to be something else, and, and now the sales rep's got to unwind that, slows the whole deal down, uh, might lead to discounting you don't want. So doing all that well at scale, obviously on the back of really good data, um, that's what ABM orchestration looks like. It should, you know, I think just feel like really, really good, slick marketing and sales collaboration at the end of the day. Um, but that's what, when we describe ABM orchestration, that's the vision. It's, it's predictive, it's cross-channel, and it's personalized at scale.
1: Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I can remember times years ago when we didn't have, you know, any sort of automation for building our target list. And I, in sales management, I mean, I can remember times when I'd hire a new superstar salesperson and I spent a week figuring out what target accounts they were going to go after. Okay. And still with that, you know, all the the hard work that went into it, I was second guessing myself. Like, yeah. I wasn't sure if I was giving them the right accounts because like you said, they were already disqualifying themselves after I had handed them off. And so... Um, I think that's a huge, um, a huge first step. The other two are a- amazing as well. But you know, just building that list can be so so incredibly challenging. And I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball here, but I think you can handle this one. Um, in terms of like how many companies that we should be putting into our one to one or one to many ABM strategy, do you have any best practices or like? You know, guidelines of some other companies that have, you know, uh, kind of made the decision of how many companies to actually target at that, you know, multi-level personalized one-to-one um, campaign level.
0: Yeah, that is a good question. Um, So I think about it, you know, when I help customers through this process, uh, we try to take a bottoms up approach from sales capacity. um, Because the one to one ultimately gets bottlenecked around like, well, what could you deliver through the sales rep? And then how far up through the funnel? Can you, can you scale that uh, with marketing? Um, so I think that, um, you know, I, I would start with knowing, you know, okay, if there's, um, you know, having a, a tiered list of, you know, how many accounts do you expect... Your your sellers um, to be reaching out to you. not like the 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 develop the sales development team but the the kind of the quota carrying reps. How many accounts are they going to be reaching out to? Um, and if marketing can have kind of one to one campaigns, some level of one to one going for at least that group that'd be the starting place of where you'd want to be able to go because the sales reps are going to be, or should be reaching out with one-to-one messaging. They should have researched their accounts. They should be working from a shared vision of what the data says about those accounts with marketing. So if sales can do it and marketing can understand how they're doing it, and has a platform to to scale those tactics, that'd be step one. And then I would take it to the next sales team after that. So in terms of, you know, the the way you frame the question, um, how many should they be doing? It's as many as possible. So I'm really talking more about the prioritization process. Mm -hmm. Start with the quota of accounts that your your quota-carrying reps need to be reaching out to. Work from there into like your sales development team. Um, and that's probably as far as you get kind of into that hundreds or maybe some low thousands. Uh, if you're doing kind of database one to one personalization, um, and then you know, kind of one to many, I, I don't think it'll scale there probably. Um, beyond in terms of the um, you know, developing individual assets and, and label, you know, yeah. that, um, but definitely as much you know coverage as you'd have for that sales development team I think is a good target um, and we're still pushing things in that direction um, so maybe we get to that one to many many thousands and thousands of good yeah. a true one-to-one um, you can you can certainly do one-to-one messaging at the tens of thousands of accounts level, but it's going to be based on very simple kind of data sets. Um, So probably not the things that are really going to compel action that are really insight driven. Um, But at the level of kind of the scale of your sales development team, I think that should
1: be doable. Thank you for that. Um, How many of your clients using cross-channel tactics or how are your clients using cross-channel tactics to improve campaign effectiveness?
0: Um, well, I think it, it comes back to that question about, or the, the the benchmark, really, I said again, about personalization, improving conversion rates um, by, by 20% at least. Where a lot of ABM programs, I think, fall short initially is that they are really that very simplified version where like ABM equals ads. And it has to be more than that. So if you're serving up somewhat, you know, customized ads to a, to a segment or, or something like that, um, and then, you know, they don't click on the ad, but they search for you and go to your homepage, or they land on like a customer testimony it's saying something totally different about you. Um, then that personalization, whatever personalization you were doing in channel A is now breaking down in channel B and all of a sudden the message isn't personalized mm-hmm. anymore. So you lose that effect. So I think that, you know, using cross channel is really about, you know keeping the message consistent. And that goes not just to what, you know, ads versus websites and examples like that, but also, you know, how marketing is nurturing accounts that sales are also reaching out to or how that handoff process works. I remember talking to so many customers um, in in the earlier days of, of account-based marketing and they'd be saying, Basically, you know, there's this handoff process and then marketing ops would say, okay, and then once they're in sales hands, like marketing doesn't touch it. We back off, all the campaigns get turned off. That's not ideal. That That's built on distrust and and, and broken down communication. So, but marketing ideally would be able to continue personalizing all the way through the sales process as well um, in ways that the reps appreciate and, and it's wind in their sales, right? Um, so I think, you know, they are using cross-channel um, tactics to improve effectiveness by one, keeping all the marketing channels just in alignment. So you're not ruining your own kind of conversion rates. Um, and second, by keeping in step with sales and actually giving good guidance to sales in the early parts of their process so that marketing can stay engaged and continue to influence the broader account instead of getting their wrist slapped and being told, okay, like turn everything off. You know, this is in the sales rep's hands now, do no harm. Um, so it's about improving conversion rates that just looks different on the marketing side versus you know when once things are sales opportunities. Um, one of the really common um, use cases that we'll support with customers, or a pain point that we solve initially is, you know, marketing um, will have run a a personalized campaign uh, as part of ABM. And then if it gets handed off to a sales development rep or or a sales rep to work, they might reach out with with different messaging just out of like, look, I've got 30 accounts to follow up with today or whatever the number is. Um, I'm going to use my favorite... This is my template that's converting really well right now. I'm going to drop it into my cadence tool and just fire away and go... Um, But sales doesn't have time always to go ask marketing, okay, for this account, what assets should I use? For this account, what's the right messaging? Um, So we'll actually, in the sales handoff process, build these one-to-one landing pages for every account. So when a sales rep, as part of our ABM programs, gets an account to follow up with, they're also getting this one-to-one landing page that they're supposed to drop into their LinkedIn messaging or drop into their sales loft email or what have you, so that when they reach out, the resources they're recommending, the messaging they're delivering, is already in line with what marketing teed up and they don't have to research it or figure it out and they can do more of the kind of the, the persona research the profile research that helps them with their subject lines and things like that so those are some examples but it's it's about keeping all of the kind of go to market teams you know aligned at the same time um, and you know ultimately making the same promotions value propositions to the account at the same time
1: yeah you might have some good lone wolf salespeople out there that you know they can close on their own and they're methodical at method messaging and can pick up on what marketing's doing, but those lone wolves can only handle so many ops. Right. And so the best sales reps are not the lone wolves. They're the ones who embrace marketing's playbook. Right. Like I am a good seller. And if there's 11 to 20 people at every account that I have to influence, I'm typically influencing three to five. Right. So like, If my marketing team is not running plays alongside or or helping me, you know, match the the offers and the messaging that they were giving uh, into that mid to late stage of the funnel, like, I think I'm in trouble. So, you know, it's really important that marketing and sales align and that they don't just pull out because there are so many personas that are in this mix that still need to see that message. and, and, And as salespeople, we don't have time. And and, and talk about events and and other collateral, we might not even have time to send a Sendoso or invite you to a cool event we're having. So like, I, I really agree with that, you know?
0: Yeah, and there, there are some profiles too who just won't want to engage with a sales rep initially. I mean, if you think about even kind of building awareness uh, in large organizations with procurement teams, I mean, they're, they're not going to talk to you probably until much later in the process. Um, but you'd like them to know what you do. You'd like them to know your value proposition. You'd like them to know... That you're established in their industry, things like that ahead of time. Um, and yeah, so it's it's limits on the sales reps time that we're solving for, like you said. Um, and also, just limits on uh, you know the realities of buyer behavior. Not everybody wants to fill out a form. I mean, almost nobody wants to fill out a form, uh, and, and a lot of people don't want to talk to sales until they absolutely have to. Further down the road, and you can get around some of that, um, but it's going to be built into your pipeline that there's people avoiding you, and so you have to, uh, you know, I think accept, you know, like you said, the best sellers accepting and embracing marketing's help and figuring out how much they can get out of that process is absolutely, you know, what's going to lead to the best results across the team.
1: Yeah. I'd love to see your playbook sometime. Cause I don't usually think about procurement in that process, but now I'm thinking I'm like, wow, you know, if you do have a best of breed solution, you can educate procurement and you can educate them on the fact that they can't get what you're buying anywhere else. So they can't have, they literally have no leverage, you know, when they come in for negotiations. Um, so what is the minimum data required to activate a company or a person in one of your ABM campaigns? And does that requirement change when you actually hand those leads to sales to follow up with? There's a, I guess there's two ways of looking at that. So with, with
0: our campaigns, if you're working with Triblio, what the customer needs to bring is you know, closed one accounts from the last 12 months or so. Um, that allows us to build, you know, a lookalike based on fit characteristics, like size, geography, industry, all those, those common factors. Um, if they have their own ICP built out already, obviously we, we start there, but kind of minimums and the, the other would be like a lookalike we can run on intent. So if we can look at their last 12 months of, of one customers understand, well, what were those folks doing before the deal closed, you know, six months before the deal closed, we can go and find others even outside of the ICP or the supposed ICP, um, who are showing those same signals, that creates an interesting um, initial data set for us to work with in terms of who we should be targeting, what types of plays to run in different seasons, things like that. Um, The second type of data the customer needs to bring is, um, which you might not think about data, but I certainly do, is the playbook, um, which is, okay, given different given different data signals, given different kind of qualifying criteria we might identify, how do we actually want marketing and sales to engage this account together? Because ultimately when we're doing orchestration, that's what we're doing. We're, we're marrying you know, data signals to these cross-channel tactics that we can run. Um, but that customer strategy has to be there of like, okay, yeah, the, well, these types of signals should lead to this type of content delivery, this type of investment in that account. You know, that account is worth a, you know, a thousand dollar investment to acquire. This other type of account spends a lot less. They're only worth, you know, a hundred dollars to acquire, whatever the math is. Um, so that playbook kind of on all those different levels, understanding what you want to invest in different types of customers and the plays you want to do that. Um, you'll need channel specific, uh, data as well. Um, so with, you know, it's pretty minimal, like on an advertising, you need to, you know, Tell us that the roles ideally you'd want to target email addresses allow us to do that a lot more accurately. Um, and your point about sales handoff, I think that's where um, a lot, you know, more is than required to do it really well. You need the contact details, obviously. Um, I think that after that, the LinkedIn profile is the next most important thing. Because again, we're going to be automatically generating, you know, what are the assets marketing you know, could ideally start with to use for this account, what's the history of the account, the data signals will provide all that, but you still want the rep to have an easy, fast time going and understanding what's the context, who maybe are the other stakeholders that aren't in our system. Um, so that LinkedIn profile creates that really quickly, uh, or the, the fastest path to that probably. Um, and then again, the sales play that you want them to run that's proven out. Um, so the marketing playbook is going to live in a place you know, like Triblio. Here's the tactics we use at different stages. Your sales playbook might live in a place like an outreach uh, where you have sequences built out. So you know, the, the connectivity there of knowing what signals then put, you know should Triblio send over into this outreach sequence? That's really important data too. Um, Trivlio brings a bunch of things to that mix. I mean, we have, you know, kind of our account universe that's built out. So that's like the database of everybody who we think you could be selling to, even if they're not in your CRM, but if we discover kind of those intent signals, we could say, okay, well, these accounts aren't in your Salesforce today, but they probably should be considered, um, you know, mapping leads and website traffic to those accounts, the firmographic data, the domain data, um, all that type of thing. I think, you know, we, we just bring, um, and then there's all the targeting data too, that we talked about earlier. So to do good website targeting, you need IP to company data to do ad targeting. You're going to need all these kind of post cookie methodologies, mail, address for, for direct mail, things like that. Um, I think the big one, though, that, that's lacking um, in most cases that, you know, we can provide is that historical intent. You know, that's the piece that everyone's trying to unlock and like, well, how do we actually look back in time? Um, so it's, uh, you know, in terms of like minimal data, you know, a lot of people are running without that right now, but you can run a lot better with that if you can, if you can look back in the intent history.
1: Yeah, I was actually going to point on that as well, because when I look at most intent providers, the last thing they want to do is give you a historical look at your your customers because it's it's challenging, right? Um, and I'm not sure why. I'm not an expert in in this, but if you can go and do a historical um, refresh on the 12 months of accounts that have closed one and see, okay, six months, three months, um, beginning stages, mid stages, like. What, 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 what was their intent when they're upselling, you know, six months later? What you can do is create those playbooks, which is like, okay, now I know that these types of companies were searching these types of signals um, it, and showing this type of intent. And then they bought these types of products. And so now you can link products or offers, uh, you know, landing pages, ads back to those intent signals at those types of companies, so that you can create playbooks for marketing and sales yeah. in the future when those are reoccurring. And yep. so I think that's just huge if you guys, you know, have an offering that does historical kind of investigation on what intent signals were actually showing up. And those are actually showing patterns across different mark, you know, account segments, like creating game plans out of that is is amazing.
0: Yeah. It, it's something that, you know, we heard getting asked for uh, frequently and it makes sense. You know, it's like uh, the first thing you'd want to do is be able to look back. And and especially now that so many marketers, I mean, the, the, you know, this podcast is just an example of it, right? Like marketers are data professionals now. And so when they understand, they, I think there's a, an assumption and a curiosity in a really great marketer's mind, there's a curiosity that like, well, if you let me look at the data, I'm going to find something new. Um, and so, you know, this getting told that, well, it's a black box and no, sorry, you can't look at Inside of it, I, I think, um, yeah, there, there's a mismatch there with who we're trying to sell to. If we're not willing to try to, you know, look back a little bit further um, and explore with customers, and we, in our experience, you know, innovation comes with inviting customers into our process, into even, you know, the the way that you know the the product roadmap is built out. Like, oh well, what do we have? What do we not have right now? But that you would find really valuable. And if we hear that, you know, five or six times, like that's enough to run with in terms of uh, saying, Let, "Let's give this a let's give this a shot. Let's do it manually." And then if that's working, then let's you know devote engineering resources to it. So that's yeah, I think I, I've been hearing the same thing. Um, we we've been hearing the same thing. And we're excited to be pushing intent data in that direction uh, because it, it just makes sense from a marketer's mindset. Like, yeah, like more data is going to be more insights. Um, even if there's more kind of you know noise to separate sometimes, uh, you know, I don't think marketers are afraid of that problem. I don't think they have any expectation that some data set's going to be perfect and all-knowing when they unlock it. They just want better tools. They want to have an advantage, a competitive advantage. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're trying to lean yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, right.
1: personalization is the name of the game. The more elements you can give me to run correlation analysis, the better I can create segments. And, and um, you know, that's always been a challenge. Another challenge is what the heck's going on with international intent data, right? It's becoming more and more hard to find. And I'm not really sure why.
0: Yeah, a few things have happened. Um, and we'll hear similar concerns from, um, you know, international teams, if we start out working with the US division, uh, when we get introduced initially to the team that's in like Europe, for instance, they'll say, Oh, yeah, well, it's, it's easy for our teams in the US to do this personalization, because they have all this intent data to work with. And over here, it's just not the same, the volumes are lower, the quality is lower. Um, and the and it's really privacy regulation driven changes and overall it's really good things that are happening i think in the privacy market um but before gdpr which came around in 2018 and a lot of people like i me and maybe you signed like 50 dpas in like may 2018 um but before that the companies that were doing predictive uh so to speak Where a lot of that data was coming from essentially wiretapping the ad exchanges. So every time an ad got served, they would, you know, kind of read that data without anyone knowing that this was happening, turning that into company data and then selling it as intent. Um, Mm -hmm. And and GDPR shut that down. Um, So... Bidstream data now in Europe is is largely masked. Um, another data source for this was Oracle's tool. Add this, they pulled that out of the European market in 2018, right before GDPR. Uh, for similar reasons, Google's expiring third-party cookies. That's going to affect um, lots and lots of tracking too. Um, so for marketers, the the way I try to you know emphasize this message about where intent's headed right now is that privacy i think 2 or 3 years ago you know everyone was paying a lot of attention to privacy because there was a lot of risk associated with it we need to get these contacts you know non opted in contacts out of our database we need to be careful about what we put in all that's true but really the future why it matters is not just risk it's about scale like if you don't have privacy compliant data to put into your systems you're not going to be able to scale a program mm-hmm. um, it's just going to be limited So where we're pushing things now um, with with IDG and and the data of theirs that we're working with is toward that vision of intent data. That is privacy compliant. It's all going to be built off of opted-in data that is international. Um, And it's a mix of digital as well as human verified, which is going to be the first product of its kind like that, where there's still the same type of like, okay, things that have been collected from website traffic, from all those digital signals, but also things uh, like, you know, surveys that are being run out of call centers, event attendance from like large industry events to like smaller events, um, analyst data. And because we're doing that across um, all of IDG's media properties and their whole business, it, it's operating in different languages. It's operating in different markets and it's all been opted in for a really long time now. So we can look back quite a ways and we can do that in all these different markets. So it is international. Um, whereas yeah, international data for the last, for intent, for the last couple of years has been, um, really, really hard to come by. Um, what I'm really excited about in the future too is that, uh, once we're able to, the other limit that you know, international marketers run up against is if they can't find any data, it's built on these English language taxonomies for the most part. Um, and it's actually a hard problem to solve because the intent data, a good intent data engine needs to be built on this AI tactic called natural language processing. And there's really great models that are open source that have been built out by companies like Amazon and Facebook for English, but the models in other languages aren't that strong yet. Mm or or just take longer to develop into. Um, So we're actually going to be mapping things like those together so that what you could understand is, okay, is a company like Fujitsu that we're targeting, um, are they researching our category in English? Are they also researching it at corporate in Tokyo? And you don't need to know both languages to monitor those signals. There's going to be a common taxonomy that applies across languages. So for these larger accounts, where you're not just looking for an English signal, you're probably looking for two or three languages coming together, um, we're going to be able to discover things like that too, which is super exciting. Probably going to take us another uh, year or so to get there with with multiple languages. Um, But that's where international is headed.
1: That's very cool and very unique. Um, The last question I have here is, do you have any unique techniques or strategies to create and ultimately refine ideal account or contact profiles?
0: yeah, things that we've we've talked about a little bit here. Um, you know I think that the ICP process today. Um, although it's come a long way, um, I would say from five years ago, like we're, we're leaps and bounds beyond, it still has two kind of weaknesses built in. Um, the first one is that, you know, if you're starting with dirty or incomplete CRM data or account data, which is a problem you guys know all about, uh, solving it, um, then you have this garbage in garbage out process, um, or things that you have to take lots and lots of time cleansing. So that's one limitation. Um, and, uh, you know, one that is certainly getting better though, and there's, there's, um. Tools, tools like yours to, to solve for that. The other one is that the ICP process in terms of what are those intent signals we should care about is still very keyword-based. And I I use a, a music analogy for this, and I probably date myself a bit in doing it. Um, but if you think about like finding like a great song for a given moment, like I, I think intent data is still stuck in what I would call the Napster era, where if you know Exactly what you're looking for, you can go find it. Oh, you know that you're looking for companies that are showing intent in account based marketing. Okay, well, we can go find those for you. But what we want to be really as marketers is not needing to know everything in order to find anything. Uh, We want like a a Spotify or a Pandora experience where we can say, okay, like this is the mood I'm in. I'm going for a run, play a song, Um, and it's the right thing. And intent data should be able to do that, it should be able to discover for Mm -hmm. us as the ICP process develops, discover for us who we should be targeting, um, even if we are not aware of those signals yet that are relevant. So for instance, an early example of this where we came across it uh, manually was a company we were working with that sold office equipment. And so they had initially been looking for companies that were searching for you know, office equipment, specific things. Um, what they found, though, was that an even better signal was looking for companies who were searching for commercial real estate because they were going to need office equipment in like nine months. So... That's the type of thing that shouldn't be like, you know, everyone has their one story of a cool insight they found, but the intent data should just be doing for us automatically. And I think that along with really clean and complete CRM data and good uh, you know data orchestration, having intent that can discover things for you that you didn't know you should be looking for. And again, that provides you a competitive advantage um, is going to be super important because it'll allow you to target new markets more quickly. You're talking about that story onboarding new sales reps and trying to find the right accounts for them. That's a manual process for you. That's a problem number one because I'm sure you have a lot of other things to be doing, especially to have then the rep <laughs> disqualify half the accounts you give. The other problem is that you only know what to look for, what you already know about. You're doing lookalike modeling in your head and in our brains. You know, no matter how smart we are, they just don't run at that speed uh, to be able to do that for a big team. So intent data, you know, in, in, as part of the ICP process, kind of the second you know pillar of the ICP process um, should be discovering and i think that's where uh the future of intent and icp the icp development is going is taking that good clean you know uh crm and account data like what you guys are providing and then marrying that with intent that can discover things and tell you things you didn't already know you were looking for um and then you're gonna you know see really really cool stuff happening in the market where something comes along um like uh you know global like a economic short, um, shortfall where, okay, all the people we thought we we're going to be buying in the next six months aren't because the economy is slowing down. Who should we be targeting right now? And you can go find that in you know a week of looking at the data instead of <laughs> scrambling like crazy. Um, so we're pretty excited about that process. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's what the ICP building looks like in the future.
1: Yeah, I love that. I mean, I'm always training people who sell to other people to try to find compelling events, that help you to indirectly sell what you're selling. Yeah. Indirect is the 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 key there. You never want to directly sell what you're selling because people, you know, if 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 you if you got up in in front of a stadium and there was ten thousand people in the audience and and you just pitched and you told the people, hey, you can get up and leave if you if this person says anything that you're not interested in, and you started pitching your product directly. You would have ninety-seven percent of the audience get up and leave right at that moment. Yeah. But if you can indirectly speak to something that all of them care about, that your product or service is instrumental in helping or solving, you have a much better chance of actually getting that conversation, keeping those people in the seats. And exactly. uh, I'll throw yeah. that to the to my my one of my 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 mentors through reading, uh, Chet Holmes, the ultimate sales machine, um, but um just love that approach and 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 I think you know, with what you guys are doing in terms of historic intent calculation to um, changing taxonomies of that data across languages, to um, making recommendations of indirect intent that could ultimately promote your product or service. I mean, those are really innovative and um, instrumental items that I think, you know, people are going to be very interested in in, in moving forward during this digital economy and, and digital transformation era. So, uh, you know, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's always wonderful to get to chat with a, an ABM expert, somebody who's, you know, not just lived it themselves, but through all the best people who are doing this. So you guys have great clients. They're teaching you, you're teaching them. And and we get to hear about all this, um, you know, information through uh the eyes and ears of of somebody who's 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 lived it. And so yeah, we'd love to have you on the show again. And we'd like to thank you for joining us. And uh I'm sure the audience is going to eat this up because ABM is something that we all want to do. But it hasn't been perfected yet.
0: Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is a great conversation.
1: Awesome. Thank you.